Good evening. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm Paul Pepys, the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. And I want to welcome you to this, the fifth and final uh, lecture in the OHC's series on this year's theme of the common good. Uh, over the academic year, we've heard from an eclectic range of speakers on our theme, from an artist using art to raise consciousness about plastic pollution, to a forest ecologist defending the ecosystems of the tropical overstory, from a journalist bringing light to the mental health crisis in our jails and prisons, to a public intellectual diagnosing and attempting to remedy income inequality. These speakers have provided a varied range of illuminating perspectives on the, on the common good, how we understand it, how it works or ought to work in our lives and the lives around us. Our speaker tonight, Harvard Distinguished Professor Danielle Allen, will bring our series to a great close, bringing her unique perspective as a political theorist to our theme of the common good. But before I formally introduce Professor Allen, I have a couple of brief announcements, as I always do. As you know, as you came in, we have an information table in the foyer where you can find out about upcoming OHC-sponsored and co-sponsored events and sign up for our mailing list. Professor Allen has generously agreed to do a Q&A uh, and a book signing after the lecture. And I should say, she's come from the East Coast. She took a red eye. So um, she's going to do about 15 minutes of Q&A and then the book signing. Um, when, you, when we do the Q&A, please come to the mics uh, at, at the end of the aisles and speak into the microphone so that everyone can hear you. Um, and also, given the amount of time that she's going to do the Q&A and to maximize audience opportunities to ask questions, please keep your questions as concise as possible and make sure to ask a question. I also need to give my customary thanks first, as always, to our collaborators in EMU Event Services and at the Center for Media and Educational Technologies for their logistical and technical support. Thanks also to the OHC's incomparable staff, our Associate Director, Gina Turner, our Program Coordinator, Melissa Gustafson, our Communications Coordinator, Peg Gerhardt, and our Student Assistant, Kaya Freeman. And thanks to our newest collaborator, uh, Jeremy Nissel of J. Michael's Books, who has generously agreed to host our book signing, a service no longer provided by what was once called the UO Bookstore. Uh, last but not least, thanks to our generous donors. If you want to join them in supporting the OHC and our public and research programs, please pick up a donation envelope from the information table on your way out. So it gives me great pleasure now to introduce tonight's speaker, Danielle Allen, who will deliver this year's Criticos Lecture in the Humanities. Established in 1993 through a generous gift from two of the OHC's loyal Portland patrons, the Criticos Professorship brings to the university and to the state of Oregon distinguished scholars, critics, and leaders in the humanities. From the Greek, Criticos translates roughly as able to judge, evaluate, and criticize. As the term suggests, the Criticos Professorship was created to foster the education of U.S. students and faculty and to promote intelligent, critical public discourse across our state. Both our theme of the common good as well as the Criticos Professorship's charge to bring to UO and Oregon distinguished scholars, critics, and leaders in the humanities who actively promote intelligent and critical public discourse help explain why we selected Danielle Allen as this year's Criticos Professor. 
Professor Allen is without doubt one of our nation's most respected, insightful, and committed scholars and public intellectuals engaging questions of the common good, its importance, and its many dimensions. Danielle Allen is the James Bryant Conant University Professor at Harvard University and Director of Harvard's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. She's a political theorist who has published broadly in democratic theory, political sociology, and the history of political thought. Widely known for her work on justice and citizenship in both ancient Athens and modern America, Allen is the author of The World of Prometheus, The Politics of Punishing in Democratic Athens from 2000, Talking to Strangers, Anxieties of Citizenship Since Brown versus the Board of Education from 2004, Why Plato Wrote from 2010, our Declaration, a reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality from 2014, Education and Equality from 2016, and Cuz, The Life and Times of Michael A. from 2017. She is also the co-editor of the award-winning Education, Justice, and Democracy from 2013 with Rob Reich, and from Voice to Influence, Understanding Citizenship in the Digital Age from 2015 with Jennifer Light. She's a former chair of the Mellon Foundation Board, past chair of the Pulitzer Prize Board, and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. Allen is also the principal investigator for the Democratic Knowledge Project, a distributed research and action lab at Harvard University, which seeks to identify, strengthen, and disseminate the bodies of knowledge, skills, and capacities that democratic citizens need in order to succeed at operating their democracy. Professor Allen's talk tonight, which derives from her work at the Democratic Knowledge Project, promises to bring her capacious humanistic learning and keen political insights to the very timely topic, the ethics of public participation in the digital age. Please join me in welcoming Danielle Allen. That's very, very generous. So. I just want to say thank you so much to Paul for that generous introduction and to the Oregon Humanities Center for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. And I think there's a school here possibly sitting over here. Thurston, is that how I got it right? So shout out to you guys. Thanks for coming out. It's terrific to see you. <laughs> and I, it's a pleasure to have a chance to talk with all of you tonight, we're all struggling, I think, to find our way in a world that has been transformed rapidly since the arrival of Facebook. So little more than a decade at this point. And so for some of you, the world has always been that way. For the rest of us, it's an extraordinary thing to imagine that there could be people for whom the world has always been this way. But so I'm hoping to work my way tonight with you through the question of just how our world has changed as a result of the arrival of social media and what that does mean for our efforts to be engaged citizens. I often use the phrase civic agency to talk about what it means to be an engaged citizen because when I invoke the concept of the citizen, what I'm interested in is the things that we do together to build community. I'm not interested in a formal status of one kind or another. I'm interested in the kinds of behaviors that work together to enable communities to make decisions together and to shape a world. So I'd like to start by reflecting on that concept of civic agency 
and giving us an anchor point for perhaps a shared definition of what that might be. And for those of you who know me, you'll know that my starting and ending point is pretty much always the Declaration of Independence. I think its second sentence gives us the most valuable, most concise definition of civic agency in any text on the planet. So what is civic agency? Let's remind ourselves. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principle and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. Now, I know all those folks sitting right there knew that was one single sentence, but I'm guessing some of the rest of you had forgotten that that sentence about self-evident truths is that long. We too often stop after pursuit of happiness. If you pay attention to the whole sentence, it's a single argument, it's just a couple of premises. People have rights, they build governments to secure rights. When governments aren't doing their job, it's the right of the people to change those governments in order to secure their safety and happiness. The sentence moves from our individual rights to what we do collectively together to secure our shared safety and happiness. The argument of the sentence, that movement, is in itself important. And it's that last clause that really, I think, drives home the argument about what civic agency is. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of those ends, the ends of securing our rights, it's the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principle and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. What activity is captured here? The people is asked to diagnose its circumstances. Is the government succeeding or failing at securing rights? If the answer is failing or not doing as well as it might do, then there's another job to figure out what the prescription is, what might be better. That, importantly, is work with two parts, laying a foundation on principle and organizing the powers of government. In other words, one has to be able to have a conversation about the values that we wish to have shaping our collective lives, and then ask questions about how we structure institutions to deliver on those values. So the project of engaging in civic life is about being able to move back and forth in conversations about values and conversations about policy and organizational form. But that conversation, that back and forth between values and institutions, it's not something you can have by yourself, right? It's about their safety and happiness, or even better, our safety and happiness. So the sentence poses a question, how do we get from some conception of individual rights to some shared picture about our safety and happiness. The only way to do that is through conversation and through structures of collective decision-making, like committees and elections and a whole slew of other bits of institutional mechanisms that we use to take conversation and turn it into a shared decision. All right, then. There's a lot packed into this sentence, but what it does, I say, to start is give us a conception of civic agency. 
Civic agency is the capacity of each of us within our communities to engage in conversations about our shared values, to think through how we can make those shared values real through how we organize and structure our institutions, and to take those conversations and to participate in them with others, seeking to find forms of compromise and consensus that permit us to generate shared decisions through our shared decision-making structures, all right? So conversation about values and power and policy, collaborative conversations that pass through shared decision-making procedures. That's what civic agency is fundamentally about. All right, so if that's what civic agency is, where on earth does it happen? So once upon a time, long, long ago, people used to talk about civic agency happening in the public sphere. And this is a lovely picture of the Pnyx from ancient Athens, the stone bima at the top of the picture there, let's see if this pointer works right up there, was the speaker's stage. This was the assembly across from the Parthenon in the center of Athens, where up to 6,000 citizens would gather and vote on whether to go to war or whether to raise taxes or whether to designate an honor to a visiting ambassador. And the Athenians had a rule that anybody who wanted, hobulamenos, they called this person, could come up, any man, any male citizen that is, could come up to the speaker stage and speak. The public sphere in our mind, in our imagination, is a place. It's a place of coming together and speaking. Of course, the second famous one is the Roman Forum. Both of these public spheres had market activity happening in them as well as political activity. So market activity and political activity have always been entangled with each other. And we recognize this idea of the public sphere from our own history and context in the sort of ideal image of the New Hampshire town hall. They still have town hall meetings in New Hampshire. It's an amazing thing. Many towns, though, suffer from there not being much attendance at town hall meetings. This one was an exceptional one from the recent past. But none of these ideas of spaces for civic agency really capture the world we live in now, because this is our new public sphere. Right? This is where we do the work of civic agency, on Facebook and Twitter, circulating things we've read via email, or otherwise sharing the parts of conversation that we have with one another. My view is that to understand the world we find ourselves in now, we actually have to push aside the spatial metaphor for how we think about where politics happens, and instead use a metaphor of flow. Right? Be able to think about circulating streams of discourse, like this is the Hoover Dam, that generate power. Just as the flow of water generates electricity, so all the conversation flowing through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all these other media is generating power. And in various moments in time, the power that these flows of conversation generate get connected with decision-making. We've all witnessed this in some sense as we've watched the whole world grow accustomed to the effect of the president's Twitter feed, right, his tweets. When he began running for office, I think nobody really believed that you could govern through Twitter, right? And whatever you may think of the actual nature of the governance that's proceeding through Twitter, governance is in fact proceeding through Twitter. Decisions are being announced through Twitter. Opinion is being shaped through Twitter. That opinion drives the kind of decision-making that members of Congress make. So that's an example of something that's not happening in any physical space, but it's about a flow of conversation. An influential person, masses of people listening, sharing, and circulating, 
all of that connecting with decision makers. Now, I have a very abstract model to capture this flow dynamics picture of the public sphere for you. Um, so forgive me for a moment, um, but now this is, this is the lecture part. All right, okay. All right, I want you to take notes. All right, so this is modeling, this picture here, the notion that our, our public sphere under this flow conception starts with the millions of us who have issues and identities and values and are parts of a community, all right? And in various ways, there's something we care about that we might contribute to this flow of public conversation. We might express a message, circulate it to the public, and then we face a critical choice. As we develop our message and begin to participate in these flows of conversation, do we seek influence or voice? What do I mean by this distinction? Influence is when flows of conversation pass through actual structural decision-making moments. When people bombard their representative with emails and phone calls and so forth in order to change their point of view. When the president tweets and his Twitter affects something that ha happens in the State Department and so forth. So that's when our discourse is flowing into structural decision-making or when Russia floods our social media feeds with disinformation and it affects election outcomes, right? That's flowing into structural decision-making. But there's lots of voice that flows instead into community building, into people saying who they are, standing up and being counted with regard to what they care about, finding other people who care about the same thing and forming alliances. An old story, but one that would be an example of this, would be what happened with the change in tobacco policy. So long, long ago, another sort of once upon a time story, people used to smoke everywhere. It's true, everywhere, even airplanes, okay? Everywhere. And then in a little community of scientists in Britain, they started to figure out that tobacco caused lung cancer. And they started circulating their message. And for a long time, it just circulated among scientists in Britain and in the United States. And then finally, at a certain point, they connected to legislators up here. And legislators started passing laws and suing tobacco companies and completely changing policy around tobacco throughout the country. So over a period of about 50 years, we saw an incredible transformation in our society because laws changed and also the decisions of individuals changed profoundly. But that change in the realm of policy was sort of came after an initial change in the realm of voice working together to change opinion, okay? So this now is where we find ourselves as we consider our own civic agency. We live in a world where communication is readily available to us. We may accidentally reach millions, even if we intended only to speak to our best friend. And when we communicate, we always have implicitly, whether we know it or not, a choice about whether what we're trying to do is pursue influence, connect with a decision maker, or stand up and be counted, be heard with regard to what it is we care about in particular, right? So it's in this context that we have to start thinking about the ethics of our participation, sort of what the stakes are of trying to participate in a world of this kind. So in order to get to a sort of sharper picture of some of the ethical challenges, I'm gonna dwell a little longer on some features of our world that have changed as a result of the arrival of these technologies. Okay. So let me just hop ahead here. So the first point I want to make, actually let me just give, make one other point before I, before I do that. Now, 
this, the, the model that I've just presented to you helps explain things like Occupy Wall Street. Now again, do you guys remember Occupy Wall Street? Oh, okay, pretty good, pretty good. All right, I'm gonna test all this stuff. It was amazing to think that Occupy Wall Street itself was already a decade ago. And when those protests spread across the country from one after another municipal area, there was a lot of criticism of Occupy Wall Street. The criticism was over and over again, they have no policy, they have no agenda, they're doing nothing. This was to misunderstand their own conception of their civic agency. They had, in fact, been spawned by a Canadian um, activist group that used sort of, um, sort of what's called subversive advertising, in effect, to try to drive changes of public opinion. Adbusters is the name of this organization. And the goal that Adbusters had was to get one meme into circulation everywhere. Anybody know what it is? You do, you all know. 1% and then 99%. That has transformed the world of our politics. That was the only goal Occupy had, and they achieved it. So the point is that they had expressly chosen not to act in this upper arena. They chose to act in this lower arena of a voice-oriented project to change public opinion on the belief that policy changes are downstream from culture changes. All right? So Occupy is a really good example of the kind of civic agency that's become possible and powerful in our age that is unfamiliar to those of us who grew up in a more institutionalist-oriented world. All right, so what else has changed? I want to reflect on what's happened to the world of our political institutions as a result of these changes. So when I talked about structural decision-making, I mentioned elections, I mentioned writing to legislatures or legislators, we might also think about affecting big decisions of corporations. So when people protest things like fair trade chocolate or fair trade coffee, you can target big structural decisions in a lot of different ways. And one of the things that has happened um, over the course of the last 15 years is that the relative impact of engaging with our political institutions versus engaging with corporations has shifted, all right? 20 years ago, it was just much easier to reach political institutions to share your opinion than it was to reach corporations. It is now just as easy to reach and target corporations as to target political institutions. And the result of this is actually to have diminished the power of our political institutions. Right? They're no longer the only object of our civic energies. There are other reasons our political institutions have been diminished. The fact that Congress can't pass a budget makes it a heck of a lot less interesting as a target of our civic agency, all right? But so one of the things that's been happening is that there's been a kind of rejiggering of the different pieces of the realm of structural decision-making. So the political space has become somewhat less important and the authority of big multinational corporations has become more important. That's one of the things we're wrestling with. Another thing that's changed has to do with the issue of faction and disagreement and division in our society. And this one takes us into the question of how technology affects the basic institutional design of our democracy. So faction refers to disagreements of opinion that are prosecuted without restraint, where people develop an almost 100% adversarial orientation to one another. These days, we tend to use the word tribalism for this phenomenon. 
I honestly don't know why we use that word. I think faction is a perfectly good word. And so I'm inviting all of you to help me try to recover the word faction. What's wrong with the word faction? That's what I want to know. They, the founders talked about faction. They knew exactly what it was. Hamilton and Federalist 9 worried that factional political spheres would linger in a state of perpetual bi vibration between the extremes of tyranny and anarchy. And this worry about excessive division, excessive polarization, was sort of written about all the way through the Federalist Papers. It was the target of what they were trying to design the institutions to control. They recognized that when you have a democracy, in any given decision, somebody's going to lose. Right? So that means you're building a political system for losing, for being a loser inside of it. Well, who wants to be a part of that? No one, unless losing isn't that bad, which is why winners need to restrain themselves. So the whole project of democracy, the capacity for all of us to go on together, depends on there being limits to how hard we fight with each other. So a way of capturing the difference I'm trying to get at comes from something Mitch McConnell said. So he described himself and his role this way. He said, losers go home, winners make policy. Now that's a complete and total adversarial view of what democratic politics is about. That view, I think, should be replaced with the idea that winners get the leadership role in making policy and nobody goes home. Okay, did you get that difference? So, winners make policy, losers go home. That's Mitch McConnell's view. My view is winners get to lead the policy-making process and that process includes the losers. Okay? So, the project of designing democratic institutions is to try to figure out how to build the institutions so that they help winners behave that way and give losers a chance to stay in the game. That means filtering faction so that it is, doesn't have enough, too much influence on the actual process of decision-making in Congress, for example. Madison was the famous defender of the design and its way of solving the problem of faction. We often focus on his solution, and in particular, the arguments in Federalist 10 and Federalist 51 for the value of representation. I'm sure you're all familiar with this argument. The notion is that there may be extremes of opinion within the population, but by virtue of having a representative system, citizens will have to elect representatives who will filter and moderate those extreme views. But it turns out that that's just half of Madison's solution, and we often forget about the second half. The second half of his solution was the view that the geographic dispersal of the country, the interruption of geographic space by rivers and mountains and so forth, would mean that all the different extreme views would be spread out and splintered and that the only way they would make it into politics would be through representatives, okay? So geographic dispersal was supposed to help make representation work as a way of filtering extreme opinion and achieving moderation for it. So you can see where this is going, right? We don't have any geographic dispersal anymore. Poof, gone, okay? That was a premise for the design of our institutions. That means we have to redesign, okay? 
So the question is, given that we can no longer consider geographical dispersion as a part of our solution to the problem of faction, what kinds of new designs for our institutions do we need in order to try to filter factionalist opinions and generate a culture of moderation? Right? That's another question that the digital age has put on the table for us. Now, I've put this question in the form of institutional design. Do we have to rethink representation? Is that the issue? Or is there another design issue we have to rethink? I might also put the question in terms of norms. Are there other ways we can rebuild norms of forbearance and restraint in decision making? Does it all have to be institutional design? Is there a culture work we could do to try to rebuild a culture of moderation and restraint? That's the other part of this problem for thinking about ethics in, in the digital age. Okay, so those are two problems. Power works differently. Corporations have more of a role. Political institutions have less of a role. Faction is a kind of unleashed sort of problem, and we really have not got our heads around that one. There are a couple of other features of civic life in a digital age that also um, are worthy of note. And these relate to what the experience is for an individual participating in the first place. I was lucky to participate for nearly a decade in a research network called the Youth and Participatory Politics Research Network sponsored by the MacArthur Foundation. And we were really trying to ascertain how social media and technology have affected the experience of young people coming into the civic realm. And we learned a few things from doing this, things that surprised us. For a long time, political scientists have thought that the way people enter into civic life is through their social connections, through their family, through their friends, through their neighbors. But we, what we found in our research with young people was that young people were becoming civically active through their interests, not through who they knew in real life, let's say, in their school or down the block. That is, young people who were fans of Harry Potter started something called the Harry Potter Alliance. And the Harry Potter Alliance works to bring justice to the world just the way Harry Potter does. So a group of young people online converged around a shared love of Harry Potter, and out of that love of Harry Potter began to develop a project of civic agency and civic action. May not even have known each other in real life. So that's a new thing to recognize that cultural interests, other kinds of affinity, are actually now a main motivator for young people especially in participating in civic life. Um, a second thing is that lots of people have been worried that the experience of young people sort of clicking on petitions or changing a Facebook profile to express something about their points of view doesn't count as real civic action. It's clicktivism or slacktivism, people sometimes say. And our research found that that wasn't actually the right way of thinking about it. What we found was that when young people were participating in this way, it was typically a gateway experience. It was actually the first step towards understanding themselves as civic people, and then beginning to build on that to other kinds of civic agency and participation. So our suggestion, our view, is that it doesn't make sense to disparage that kind of online behavior, signing petitions, circulating messages, that kind of thing. It makes a lot more sense to identify where young people are participating in that way and to think about how to build additional layers of civic participation on top of those entry points for participation. But then the last and most important point we learned something that makes civic agency very different in this generation from previously, has to do with the kind of vulnerability the digital realm creates. We all know about this. We talk a lot about bullying, for example. We are all aware of the incivility of life online. But there are other kinds of dangers, too, 
And I want to spend a little bit of time focusing on those, um, and in particular by looking at some stories. And the kind of dangers I want to focus on relate to the concept of having a public persona. Online spaces escape our control very easily. When we participate in Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, there's always a digital afterlife. What we produce can move and has a public life beyond anything we might have imagined for it. This means that as young people start to participate civically online, they have to do more thinking up front about what they want their public persona to be. So how much should they share about themselves? For example, if you're a rural kid who is thinking about coming out sexually as gay and starting to do advocacy around LGBTQ issues, but your family doesn't know yet, do you do that online? Or how do you think about the relationship between your online and your offline persona? These things don't stay separate from each other, typically they come together. And so there's a lot of complicated negotiating of what is my public persona exactly? How will that connect to my private persona? Relatedly, the experience of virality is unpredictable, but real. And this puts psychic pressures on young people too when they participate um, in civic life. So I wanna, this is where I wanna get to the specific stories. I wanna tell you the story of a young man named Jason Russell. And I'm guessing this story is far enough back, goes back to 2012, that you probably don't know it. Has anybody heard of Jason Russell? Okay. So Jason Russell was a young man, grew up in Southern California, went to school, I think at UC San Diego, and was a part of a network of young Christian activists who had converged online. Again, that's an example of an interest having led people together. They didn't come out of a single church, they met online. And the specific thing they had a passion for was trying to stop Joseph Kony, who was running an insurrectionist army in Central Africa and uh, pulling child soldiers into this, abducting, otherwise um, forcing children to be soldiers. And so Jason and others founded a group called Invisible Children to try to stop Kony, Joseph Kony's actions. They circulated a video that went viral, got massive amounts of attention around the world. Um, they had posters that went, that went along with it that ended up literally on the walls of American military commanders in Central Africa. They had very specific requests they wanted to make to Congress to generate more funds to, to fund uh, fighting Joseph Kony in Central Africa. And ultimately, Congress did do this. Whether or not their movement made the difference is impossible to say. But it's a reasonably plausible thing that that's the case. But the heart of this work happened in about a week. All right, so they'd been sort of working slowly, and then they posted a video online. It was a very dramatic video. Oops, my slides are out of order here. Okay, I apologize. I'll come back to that in a second. It's a very dramatic video. It went viral. And by the end of the week of this having gone viral, uh, Jason was having a nervous breakdown. Uh, running naked in the streets of San Diego, okay? And I, this is what he had to say about the work that they were trying to do. This is sort of in, before he had his breakdown, that's what was out of order. Um, in the video, his voiceover says about his son, as a dad, I want my son to grow up in a better world than I did. And because of the course of the events in my life, I see a way to get there. It has become my job. People ask me, who are you to end a war? I'm here to tell you, who are you not to? So that was sort of the spirit of commitment that had led him into this work. And I'm just gonna play for you a little bit of um, a video 
about um, a conversation he had with Oprah talking about his breakdown. He's just one example. It's a sad thing that there are a good number of cases where the pressures of just responding with a magnitude of incoming attention literally disable people. Right? This is a feature of our social media world that we have not taken enough into account. So let's see if I can get this to play properly. Let me see. Let me just make sure. Are smart dogs the answer to distracted driving? Now let's see. Skip nope, that ad. But Geico has a simple tip. Okay. I don't remember any of that. Like, by the time I had left, I remember why I left the backyard. You meant why? I thought, I have to get to New York oh, in the next 12 hours. I see. Should I go back? That's what I thought. So I just want to make sure you can see the video and not just hear it, what we're trying to do. There we go, okay. We can just hit play, I think it's okay. It's fine from here. Because I have to stop the war. Some, I ran out to the front, and I think I was trying to ask cars to take me to the airport in my underwear. That's what you think you were doing. Mm -hmm. Your mind is so, so powerful. You know this, it's so strong. Yeah. And if you feed it, you know, if you feed it with this chaotic noise yeah. and everything else, mm -hmm. you lose who you are. Okay. So is that last sentence, if you feed it with this chaotic noise, you lose who you are, captures what it can be like to participate in the world of social media, not just for young people, but for everybody. So the point is that there are psych psychic burdens, literal psychological burdens, um, that come along with um, public participation in our new digital age. And let me just give you one more, more recent example. You will all recognize this image, um, the famous, now famous Covington um, photo of the student and a Native American activist in a confrontation on the mall that circulated virally and led to really abysmal personal results for both of the people in the photo. The actual event on the mall, not a particularly great thing, but not anything of the magnitude that either of them deserved to have a tr basically traumatic event occur to them. How did that happen? For a while there was some speculation that the video had been uploaded by Russian bots or something of the sort as a part of Russian disinformation campaigns to sort of target divisions in America. The reason for thinking that is that the account Talia is one that tweets about 200 times a day, which is not possible for most human beings to do, which is usually a sign of somebody using bots to generate extra tweets. In fact, it turns out probably not to have been Russian disinformation, but rather to have been a, a teacher in the Bay Area in California. Teachers. Anyway, so, so we have to talk to our teachers about <laughs> civic life and media and so forth. Um, but the point is just that so Talia is a teacher who had in various low-level ways, she had opinions, she had strong anti-Trump opinions, in various ways she was circulating those opinions on the web. Here was a moment where there's no apparent sense that she intended what she did to go viral, yet it did, and again, had traumatic impacts on the lives of these two people. And in addition, I think for lots of people who reacted to the video as it circulated, people reacted to it really fast, you'll remember that. 
And so it's a good example of another kind, another element of the psychological burden that social media presents us with. Provocative material to which we have an instinctive reaction and therefore need to learn how to train ourselves to sit back, step back, and ask ourselves the question about, deep questions about the sources of our reactions, the sources of the material that we're viewing, before we leap to conclusions about action. The point of both of these examples is that public participation in a digital age is bringing us new kinds of psychological challenges that we're not accustomed to. And so, as I said about the problem of institutional design and faction, here too, in this space, we have to think together, work together to figure out how to build the capacity we need to protect ourselves against these challenges of public participation in a digital age. In order to try to build that capacity, my colleagues and I from that research network have developed a very short um, reflection protocol, as we call it, the purpose of which is to try to help young people equip themselves for ethical participation um, in our digital public spheres. <clears throat> and I'm going to just go ahead and go through these questions briefly in closing to give you a sense of how we are trying to scaffold equitable, effective, and self-protective civic agency for young people. So we first ask young people to consider the question about whatever issue they're going to engage with. Why does it matter to them? Because there's a risk of substantial reaction, it can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing, one has to be centered in one's own commitments, genuinely committed to what one's undertaking before one undertakes it. That requires intentionality, self-awareness, and self-knowledge. Second question, how much should I share? Again, that's that issue of that public persona. And what does it mean to have a public persona living in the world? How do I make whatever I care about about more than myself? This is where we're trying to help people rebuild norms of equitable issue identification. So you need to identify the issue you care about, but it has to be about more than you. You have to be able to pivot from I to we and ask the question of how whatever it is you care about is something that might reasonably be relevant to the big community of which you're a part. Then the question, where do we start? What I'm going to show you here is each of these questions is helping either to build up capacity for equity or capacity for self-protection or capacity for being effective, being, having efficacy um, in this world of public participation. Where do we start? You can start with fandom. You can start with areas of cultural interest. You can start with Harry Potter. You can start with a shared Christian commitment to liberation in Africa. Um, you can start with petitions, you can start with clicks online, but then once you've engaged and gotten other groups in, there's a question of how to go further. But along the way, because our lives are now so public, entangled with the public, there's the issue of the crowd. How do you get wisdom from crowds, but also how do you handle the downside of crowds? And there are lots of ways we can help young people repair, prepare to think about that question. Does raising our voices count as civic and political action, or are we seeking influence? Is it that, that voice or influence choice? And lastly, and most importantly, especially for young people, how do we find allies? <coughs> Excuse me. And that question is as much about finding allies in older generations as anything else. So we often, in our public world at present, really let things fragment into generational cohorts. And this is not a necessary thing. So young people have the capacity to be powerful civic actors. There are dangers that come with that. They also have a lot to gain from forming partnerships with the adults around them. So equity, efficacy, and self-protection 
those, I would argue, are the core elements that need to be brought together in ethics, the ethics of participation in our digital age. The self-protection element is the newest part of thinking about what it means to be a civic agent. Um, it's a little bit like what the airlines always tell you, right? You've got to put the oxygen mask on yourself in order to be effective at helping other people. And I think our digital age has made that lesson critical. So where does that leave us then? We started with this anchoring conception of civic agency. I'll just remind you once again. <coughs> we hold these truths to be self-evident. All people are created equal. That they are endowed, that they're created with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, driving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So all of that continues to pertain. The sentence, as I said to start, pivots across its arc from I to we. That's gotten much harder for us to do. We have to relearn how to make that pivot from I to we, from what I care about to what might be good for all of us. The sentence focuses on efficacy as a relationship between understanding our values and understanding institutional design. We have some hard problems of institutional design in front of us. The answers that were achieved when the sentence was written no longer all still hold. So we ourselves have to become reinventors of the institutions if we're going to be effective civic agents. And lastly, self-protection. We are after the safety and happiness of all of us. And that safety and happiness is something that we can define together and pursue together, but it's also the case that each of us has to learn new skills of self-protection for this era of public participation. Thank you. And I just realized, reading that sentence now, I can't believe it, I'm very embarrassed. I left out a whole chunk the first time I read it, didn't I? Did I not read, read, leave out the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness part? Okay, phew. I'm going crazy. So yes, let me hear questions. your thoughts and questions, especially you guys. Hello. So in light of the framework that you've created for analyzing this type of civic agency, mm -hmm. do you think there's still a role for a constitutional convention to address a number of the issues that have emerged in the last 30, 40 years? So I don't think we need a constitutional convention to address the issues that have emerged. I think we can address the issues that have emerged through legislative decisions at the state and federal level. So for example, I think we need to increase the size of the House of Representatives. 
hasn't been increased in about 100 years. It can and should go up 50 seats, I believe. Um, there's reason to think that you could get both parties on board because it's not actually clear which party would benefit the most from such a change. And it would, be, it would do us a service of re-weighting the balance of population in the country by increasing the size of the House relative to the Senate that would affect the Electoral College. So that's a change that you can affect without a constitutional convention. Um, relatedly, I think that we would be much better off if we had multi-member congressional districts and ranked choice voting. So ranked choice voting is when you don't just vote for one person, you vote for your first choice, your second choice, your third choice. If your first choice doesn't get into the top set, it rolls off and your second choice vote goes up, for example. And if you do that, what you end up having is districts that would be represented by more than one person and most likely, in most cases, from different parties. So Republicans and Democrats would have to work together representing a shared constituency. Um, and in addition, it would mean that you would no longer have a case where the minority party in any given district never gets their voice sort of heard or represented through their representative. So it's in effect a kind of proportional representation system. Um, that's also possible through legislation. It doesn't require um, a constitutional convention. And that's also, it could be done through state legislation. It doesn't even have to be done through federal legislation. You could do it either way. But there's a number of things like that that I think would bring a lot of health um, to our institutional design, do some of that filtering work I was trying to talk about. And my belief is you should pursue all those pre-constitutional options before you come to the conclusion that a constitutional convention is a necessary thing. Great. So you, you spoke about uh, how the founders uh, thought of uh, geography limiting factions. Uh, I guess my question is, uh, outside of um, technology, uh, how do you think um, both gerrymandering and how people now have just moved and concentrated politically, uh, and did they foresee that, and what, what are your opinions? Yeah, no, it's a sad thing that we have geographically sorted ourselves um, by different <clears throat> ideological camps. Um, and, you know, gerrymandering, I think, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger had already the best line on that, right? Which is that, why should we let the politicians choose the voters? No, the voters should choose the politicians, right? So independent redistricting commissions, as California has achieved, as Arizona is working on, as Ohio is working on, that's something that we need, and I would advocate for state, every single state in the union pursuing that. So yes, I agree that gerrymandering is a problem. And I think if you take this kind of list of things that you're now hearing from me, put them all together, um, it's, it should start to generate some remixing of ideologically separate um, uh, communities. Um, also importantly, the, when I, the argument about ranked choice voting matters because then when you campaign, you don't want to just be somebody's first choice vote, you want to be their second and their third choice vote as well. That means you actually have to campaign to the other party. And that kind of process starts again, sort of mixing up of the kind of ideological enclaves. So ranked choice voting, people. Hello. Hello. Um, so I was wondering, since you mentioned about the switch from space to flow with the digital age, that people who choose not to have social media or not to be as involved online, are they necessarily gonna get left behind or is there a way to still include um, 
like, or are those people just hoping for institutional values more and won't be as influential? Or what do you think about like how you choose to participate if you choose to participate at all? That is a great question. Thank you very much. Um, so let me start. I think there are two important things in your question. One is really about what does it mean for us all to be kind of tied to these machines all the time? And then the second one is really about civic participation. So on the first, um, Boston has this great um, civics project for kindergartners where the mayor has a competition and asks every kindergarten to do a group project and propose an idea that would make the city of Boston more interesting, more fun, and more fair. And a couple years ago, the winners um, were a group that proposed that every park in Boston should have lockers installed in the park. Why? So that parents could put their cell phones in the lockers, <laughs> right? Play with their kids. But the kids recognize that the parents would be really anxious if they had left the phone all the way at home. So they can't leave it all the way at home. Maybe you gotta call 911, so you want it there at the park, but in the locker. So kindergartners know that we all spend too much time on our devices. And so we all should, I'm, not, I'm like a totally guilty offender here, I don't do this, but should have you know, device holidays, like reinvent the Sabbath or reinvent the sundown to sundown practice of going without electronics for a period of time and thinking of that as a kind of mental and spiritual therapy and cure. Um, so we all need that. That said, I actually do think at this point in time, you can't understand the political dynamics of our society if you don't participate in digital media. So I think it's powerful enough and the sort of structure of the communications ecology is having enough of an impact that you just actually don't know what's happening if that's not visible to you. That doesn't mean you can't be effective at all, but it means you'll be continuously surprised. And so I think full understanding of the shape of the world does actually at this point require exposure to these flows. Um, but that's where I do think, coming back to the first point, um, one wants to figure out how to regulate, titrate, and protect oneself from the toxic effects of those flows. Yeah. Hi. Hello. So I'm 35 years old, and I know my parents, they were always talking about when I grow up, I want to be president, right? In my era, I heard a lot of people say, you know, the president isn't the one who makes the policy, it's the lobbyist. So when I grow up, I want to be a lobbyist, right? <laughs> so now for my children and, and for those coming up, do you see uh, the benefit of them being influencers and change makers based on communication and the social flow of media? Or do you think that the influence is still within the political realm? I think it's in both places. I think it's in both places. And I do think um, at this point um, in time, yeah, I mean, it's just in both places. And um, it is possible to drive meaningful change in, for example, climate policy um, without that passing through legislatures. And so, you know, as you all know, lots of climate change activists are working on interactions with corporations and sort of, it, or universities and university endowments and you know, how people invest in carbon fuels and things like that. That entire world of big institutional decision makers, if you can change that world, that is as consequential as legislative change. So I think that is one of the things that our legislatures are struggling with. It's just that literally 
they're not proportionally as important as they used to be. That doesn't mean they're not important, they are, and we, we ought to rebuild their health, because at the end of the day, our representative systems are the only things that actually synthesize all of our thought and talking and decision-making into something shared. So the work of activists through corporations is powerful and effective, it's not shared. And that critical difference is the claim that legislatures, representative assemblies, have for their value to all of us. Yeah. Yes, come on. Good job. <laughs> With everything that you've presented to us, do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that we've transitioned from a public civil engagement to a digital form of participation? Oh, that's another good question. Um, so, you know, I'm one of those people who tends to say there's some good, there's some bad, okay? So, um, you know, the early age of the internet, the early age <coughs> even of social media was just full of utopian visions. Right? Again, lots of people remember this. Like the internet was going to make us all free. It was going to get rid of power and get rid of hierarchies and be incredibly egalitarian and make democracy the best thing that it ever had been. And obviously, it has not done that. Um, so it has brought us new challenges. It has also opened up the opportunity for lots of people to be creative contributors to our public conversation who didn't have access previously. So it has widened participation. That's a very valuable thing. Um, at the same time, it's undermined you know, the pre-existing structure of our institutions. I don't think that undermining is permanent. I just think it means we all have to like, get to work remembering, because we forgot, like, how to design institutions to support democracy. It's like that's the real thing that these changes have made visible. It's just the fact that we've been like, coasting, like for a couple of centuries, didn't have to think about it, and now we have to think about it. So we have a whole lot of collective knowledge to rebuild about what kinds of institutions actually help a democracy operate. So good and bad, widened access, widened the voices that we hear in public life, that's a hugely beautiful and valuable thing, um, means we can't coast any longer in terms of understanding how to build and operate a democracy, so we have work to do. Thank you for your question. Thank, oh, I think a two, okay, two more, should we do that? Okay, I see two more folks, and then probably we'll, I need to admit that I'm on East Coast time. Thank you, um, I loved your image of the Athenian polis, and uh, it's especially beautiful to me that you pointed out the podium. Yeah. So in other words, to be heard, you go to the podium, and everyone looks at you the way we're all looking at you now. Mm -hmm. We're all focusing on you now. Right. To me, this is a public because we are listening to the same thing. Mm -hmm. Our directions going oriented toward the same thing. This mm -hmm. is the feeling that I get in right. public. So my question is, on the internet, especially social media, right? Not simply New York Times digitized. On social media, when everyone is actually just posting from their own 
it's 10 million microphones. We're not all looking at the same place, right? So um, it is actually um, some public, uh, some voices, but also crowds. So do you, how can we redefine the public in a world where there's crowd and there is no podium? We're actually not all looking at the same thing. So there's many things you see on social media that are actually private stuff, right? Things about people's drinks and pets and, you know, and that takes away the feeling of the public that you presented so vividly in the mm -hmm. you know, Athenian polis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and no, I think you've nicely described another of the set of challenges in this space. So, I mean, the sad thing is that we do sometimes all look at the same thing, right? Like this would be an example of a moment where we did all look at the same thing, but it wasn't salutary, it wasn't helpful or healthy for us to all be looking at the same thing in this way. Um, so I think to some extent, um, there are sort of a set of different questions. What are the things that become the shared things and why do they become the shared things? And how do we improve the quality of those things we end up sharing accidentally or intentionally? Um, and then to the degree that we do have silos and fragmentation, um, that's where for me the kind of institutional design questions come in about what are the, the structural things that would actually force more interaction. And that's why I come back to things like the ranked choice voting which would require politicians to campaign across silos. Like if, if politicians had to campaign across silos, that would drive a lot of other communication and interaction across silos. So that's where I sort of think it's important to remember that we don't always have to change our, our, ourselves in the sense of just become better people. It's like, it is good to become a better person and we should all be working on that. Um, but we can actually change the sort of incentive structures of, for behavior too. Um, it to ways that help us become better people. So that's like Madison's line about the better angels of men's nature. We have to build designs because we're not all angels. Nonetheless, that was Lincoln's better angels of men's nature, but Madison, um, you know, if men were angels, then we wouldn't need all these institutions. So we're not angels, so we build institutions to help the angel part of ourselves be more likely to come to the surface. Thanks. So last question, if that's all right. Um, because of the fluidity of the followers of um, social influencers, does that make um, them kind of the it's a uh, the default um, moral, um, ethical and and uh, sociological leaders because of that or or. So the question of who's an influencer is less fluid than it may appear. In the sense that there are some people who understand the fluid dynamics of our world of public discourse and conversation. One person who understands that stuff really well is Steve Bannon. Okay? Like Breitbart is not successful by accident. All right? So people know how to um, navigate the flows of conversation, the relationship between pockets of grassroots opinion, influencers who can link grassroots pockets, and influencers who can connect to decision makers and so forth. There's as much of an architecture to the dynamics of this flow as there were to physical and geographical public spheres. Um, and the people who are shaping our world right now know that and are working um, on the basis of that understanding. So it feels fluid, less fluid perhaps than it feels. Thanks very much for your attention. So Professor Allen is gonna be signing books in the lobby.